Welcome to the Food Lens Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Smart, New England food writer and founder of The Not Just Company. And I'm your host, Molly Ford, co-founder of The Food Lens, your online resource for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. On each episode of our podcast, we chat with restaurant industry insiders, digging into business, passion projects, and food trends to see what's shaping the New England restaurant scene. On today's episode, we're chatting with the queen of Fenway, Tiffany Faison, the chef behind Sweet Cheeks, Tiger Mama, Fool's Errand, and most recently, Orfano. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Molly. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? How's mom life? Mom life is great. It's getting, going well. You getting any sleep these days? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely none. Could you tell? <laughs> Do you see how big this coffee is? Hey, you're still smiling. It's, it's so. all good. It's you're all here, good stuff. You're smiling. You have a positive attitude, <laughs> yes. so I appreciate that about you. Of course. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I'm so excited to meet Tiffany Faison. I've never met her in real life. I did stumble into her in a bathroom once, and it was many years ago, and I was a little bit starstruck. This is like, you know, right after she, um, or not that long after she'd been on Top Chef. I agree. I'm always a little starstruck when I see her out in public, and I've actually never met her personally either, which is crazy because we DM each other a lot. She slides <laughs> right into yeah. your DMs. Well, I slide into hers. No. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always a little starstruck around her, and I'm really excited to chat with her. Um, you know, I remember the Fenway area being so different when I came to Boston in 2007 for college. And I actually worked as a server at Game On. <laughs> so I was really in the uh, the Fenway bar scene at that time. And you've come so far. You're still living in Fenway, but now you're like sipping, you know, craft cocktails at Orfano instead of like giving beers to really drunk people at Fenway games. <laughs> exactly. And so I've just been, you know, uh, mesmerized watching the transition of Fenway uh, that still has all of those sports bars on Lansdowne Street into, you know, Tiffany land on Boylston Street <laughs> with all of her restaurants dominating oh, the area. It's amazing. And I want to know how she makes those biscuits at Sweet Cheeks because those are something special. They're so dreamy. I mean, you could literally do a crawl on Boylston at all her restaurants. You get biscuits at Sweet Cheeks with some fried chicken, of course, and, you know, a tiki tiki cocktail and uh, I think you could say it's Kagra Pao, the Thai dish. It's super spicy, so it goes perfectly with a, a tiki drink. Hey, listeners, if we organized a Tiffany Faison crawl, would, is that something you'd want to do? I mean, I could see that happening. Yeah. I'll spearhead the effort. Let's lead one. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we should um, welcome her into the studio. Well, thanks for coming in, Tiffany. I've been dying to meet you. I feel like we interact on social media really often. You do I'm always, our Insta friends. Yeah, I'm the one behind the food lens, <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> tagging all your restaurants all the time. Thank you for supporting us like you do. I really appreciate it. Of course. It's nice to be here. so excited to pick your brain about all things Fenway restaurants yes. and more. You're going to be disappointed when there's nothing in that brain. <laughs> Open up the top and it's just... You left it all on the There's just tumbleweeds the blowing through there. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, everybody is always hassling about Top Chef, and we're just sort of over it. Yeah, I'm super over <laughs> um, it. Is that cool if we just don't talk about Hell it? Hell yes. Awesome, awesome. But being Bostonians, um, I'm so curious about some of your earlier experiences in the Boston restaurant scene. Like, huh. I think about Michaela Larson and Todd English, and like, you know, you have worked with some really well-known, sometimes infamous people. Um, <laughs> you you have a really interesting story that I would like to hear a little bit more about. Sure. I started cooking, um, well, I moved to Boston in 2001. Um, I went through a breakup with my first, like, 
significant girlfriend and my brother was in grad school and said, you know, you can always crash on my couch. And I was like, no, it's fine. And then two weeks later, <laughs> crying, <laughs> packed a couple duffel bags and I was like, okay, I'm coming. Um, and I crashed with my brother and I started, I couldn't, I was bartending before I was in front of the house. Um, couldn't find a job to save my life. Um, Boston is very insular in that way, less now than it used to be, but none of my experience mattered at that point. Long story, somewhat short. It's a very long story, but I ended up bartending for the Ritz Carlton, opening up the new Ritz Carlton. September 11th happened and I just wasn't happy. And I really thought about mortality for the first time and like the larger picture of life. And Bonfire was opening. It was a Todd English restaurant. I didn't know who Todd English was. I didn't know what a celebrity chef was. I didn't know what a Bordelais was. Like, I didn't know what anything was. I just knew that I wanted to be there. I had no idea why. And so I thought, let me just go bartend, hang out, get to know Boston, have some fun, make some money. Um, they'd hired everyone. Once again, couldn't get a job. Uh, I took a job as a busser because that's all they had. My The GM was like looking at my resume and she was like, you, you sure? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. Bus tables for like two days. Started running food when they realized that I could do more than bus tables. And then I became the expediter, which is like the liaison between the kitchen and the, the front of the house. The expediter gets your food where it needs to go, coordinates things that get sent back. So it's kind of the maestro. Like um, It's one of the two most important positions in a restaurant. Uh, front door, host is one, expediter is two. Nothing happens without those two people. They get the least amount of credit, but they call the game. So I started doing that and just started watching the kitchen and was really fascinated with how, it, like the chaos of it. And it looked like... It looked like the weirdest sport on earth. You know what I mean? Just like these people are obviously working as a team, but it doesn't totally look like that. And it's somewhat competitive internally. And also the, it, you don't function unless you're all doing it together. Um, so I found myself really drawn to it. I love people's food stories, like when, how they became chefs. And they're like, I was like loved food so much. And I like, that's not my story. I was like, <laughs> what is this sport? Like what's happening back here? Are you an athlete? Like, did you grow up an athlete? Uh, yes, but not in traditional ways. Like, it, it was like a competitive – I was an All-American cheerleader. What? <laughs> I <know>. Really? <laughs> is that dancer. common knowledge and I just didn't know that? Um, That's surprising. I don't know how common it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yes, working as an individual in a team. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I started – I asked to learn a station. My chef uh, laughed at me for about two months and I just, like, was the most annoying person in the world and kept asking. And he said, when you quit, you have to come back and be the expediter. You can't leave. I said, okay. So I started Hot Apps on a Tuesday night. I was doing, it was like a, the longest, most giant menu in the history of all menus um, within like a special list that was another 26 items. Don't oh my ask. God. Signature at Hot English. Like, <laughs> um, and I was terrible at it. Like this is when you're waiting for me to be like, oh, it fit like a glove. It did not. I was horrendous, like really fucking terrible at it. Like spinning around and like I was boring a hole through the ground spinning. I couldn't cut an onion. I didn't, and everything felt terrible. I'm not someone who's good at not being good at something. So I just drill down until I am better at it or I quit. And I refused to quit because I knew so many people were waiting for me to quit. So I just kept going. And I mean, everything felt terrible. My chef coat felt terrible. Like didn't feel like it fit right. And the apron didn't fit right around my neck. And I just always felt, you know, when your clothes don't feel right and you're about to get a cold and you feel like all you want to do is crawl in bed and ignore the world. Like it felt like that for about two years. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And I just kept kept going. And then I don't know, I guess it was yeah, a year and a half, two years later I looked up and like they did kind of given me my whole life at that point and I, I started enjoying it and actually loving food. So it was a slow burn. Slow burn. Yeah. It was not like it was not an instant match at all. 
So, so yeah, I ended up working um, for Tad English for like four or five years on and off. And then I was using like my day off to go stage, stage at Nine Park and um, Hammersley's and anywhere that I could go like on my day off to just kind of soak in whatever knowledge was out there. Because I, I hadn't gone to culinary school, so I acutely understood the things that I did not know. So because of that, I feel like I, I was like overdoing it. I don't think I slept for like four years. And then I started traveling and cooking with Todd English, um, doing all his events and opening his new restaurants, which was great, weird, great, super weird. I don't know. From there, I went to Pagal, um, Craigie Street. I opened the original Craigie Street. Um, I then left and went to Las Vegas. Blah, blah, Top Chef came back, went to Nantucket, um, worked at Straight with, with Gabriel, and then got kind of picked out of the ether from Michaela Larson to be the chef at Roca. And that's... That was my last gig before Sweet Cheeks. And I feel like a lot of our listeners slash readers might not be familiar with Michaela Larson and like what a big deal Michaela's was and, yeah, you know, what kind of a force she was in the restaurant scene. Michaela's was the original really big deal restaurant in, I mean, like post Lockover, post like fancy, like new school, kind of celebrity chef driven. I mean, Todd was her first chef and then Barbara was her second chef and then Jody was her third chef and then I was... I don't know, like six or seven along the way. But yeah, she's she's a big deal. She's a visionary. She's someone who really contributed to the Boston restaurant scene in such gigantic ways. And so when she she says, you, you say, okay, yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. So you obviously love the chaos of being in restaurants. And no, I don't anymore. <laughs> but like, you did. I am, obviously, if you kept going, I like a well-tamed beast now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm allergic to the chaos. <laughs> well, you did back in I the did. day. Yeah. Did you have some epic barbecue experience in the South? What was it that officially drove you to open a place like Sweet Cheeks? You know, like barbecue in New England. So I grew up um, as an army kid, and so we lived in Oklahoma and Texas, and. Um, and so that my mom's from Georgia, like that's the food that I grew up with in terms of what she cooked when we felt like if I, we were living in Germany, it was still black eyed peas and collard greens and fried okra. And that's how that was what home meant to me. So, yeah, I didn't think I was going to do a barbecue restaurant. I was very intent on doing my like very important. Look at me. I'm a big deal chef. Here's my handmade pasta, homemade charcuterie. Here's my one Asian influenced dish. Um, <laughs> here's my perfect menu. And I couldn't find the space. So Roca closed. Um, unfortunately, it was kind of like a hard transition. Um, Roca closed, and we weren't giving a lot of, given a lot of notice when it closed. And that was it for me. I just thought, this is too hard, and I'm not going to work this hard in my life and do it at the hands of someone else and allow that to happen again. And I just it, it just thought, it's too hard. And I've put too much into this to, like, not really make this work for myself. And at that point, I had been on, you know, um, Top Chef and I just thought I like I should benefit from all this bullshit that I'm putting myself through <laughs> so um so I intended on opening my very you know special fancy please look at me restaurant couldn't find a space which ultimately was just the universe saying don't do that right now um walked into the space that is now Sweet Cheeks it was Cambridge One it was a pizza place and it's like it came over me like it just like like a fucking wave I was like oh god this is it I, I remember working with this broker and him saying, you need to go look for, look at this space in Fenway. And I thought, like, I'm not – are you insane? Like, Gas can flag in. Yeah. <laughs> Fenway is like – yeah. It it's baseball, gas stations, liquor stores, and gay bars. Like, it's where I crawled home from in my 20s. Like, I'm not <laughs> opening a restaurant there. And, uh, yeah, I just saw it and thought, oh, shit. Like, this is definitely – this is it. Went home, came up with the name, the menu, everything in, like, 15 minutes. I mean, wow. it was just, like, pouring out of me, um, which was cool. Um 
my wife almost left me. I mean, she's from here and was like, people in Boston don't get barbecue. And I was like, because there's no good barbecue in Boston, (laughs) like chicken, egg. And it worked out fabulously. And now there's 700,000 barbecue restaurants in Boston. You're welcome. One of the best meals of my life was... Uh, one of the first nights my son stayed with my parents so my husband and I had like the night to ourselves yeah. uh, we went out the night before it was like crazy we woke up the next day we're like what are we gonna do like we have this brunch like it's so important that we like spend these couple precious these hours these hours are precious they're yeah. so precious and we went to Sweet Cheeks and it was like the best meal ever Yay. and we still talk about it and I can picture like every bite and every sip and I just love that restaurant guys, so much thank you thank you it's a lovable restaurant it's um, and it was such a great like first restaurant right I learned a lot about consistency. I learned a lot about running a business. It didn't have to be this like creative bastion for me, right? Like I didn't have to go like, okay, like it's time to, I mean, we, we changed things a little like, but barbecue is one of those things like, you know what you're ordering before you hit the door. You know what I mean? And it's just all about consistency. So yeah, Sweet Cheeks has given me a lot. It's a, it's, it's my first kid. Yeah. So that's why I'm so, I'm curious to hear about so much, but how long did you have Sweet Cheeks before you went ahead and opened Tiger Mama, right? Mm-hmm. That was next. We opened Sweet Cheeks in 2011. I opened it with a business partner that I'm no longer um, with. And then we opened Tiger in 2015, so four years. I wanted to pay back all of my investors and make sure that there was no, just anything left. Like, I wanted it to be like, you know, I think there's a lot of concern, especially about young business owners and chefs and restaurants being so volatile, that I really wanted to kind of put that in a box, put a bow on it, and then go on to, like, the next project and feel really good about that. So four years before Tiger opened. And I think it's so interesting. You brought Sweet Cheeks, you know, barbecue to New England, and then you opened Tiger Mama, which was Southeast Asian, like so different. Can yeah. you tell us about the inspiration behind that opening? Sure. It's so interesting, like how one thing leads to another. Sweet Cheeks taught me that I never wanted this like precious restaurant that was just about me. That was like, please come have this experience that I want you to have. It's like, I want you to have your experience. I want you to I want to build a place that's gorgeous and that um, is fun and and gives you what you want when you walk in. And so... What I wanted out of Tiger was something I wanted. I wanted the flavors of Thailand and Vietnam and Malaysia and Cambodia. I wanted them to come through really strongly. Um, and there's some authentic Thai menus in in Boston. You have to know the people that own the place to like to really get there. Um, and I I felt like there was this Americanized version of that food in Boston that I hadn't, you know, sort of seen it represented well in other cities. And I just kept, and I, we, we traveled there a bunch, my wife and I traveled there a bunch. Um, and I fell in love with it entirely. And on our first trip, she was like, you have to cook this food. And I just remember thinking like, there's no way (laughs) this is like, I like, like cooking Thai is like speaking Thai. Like I was going to say, it's a different language. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Go ahead and try. Um, and then we just kept going back and it really started thinking, Okay, so I've built some trust because Bostonians aren't the easiest, as you know, mm-hmm. um, with restaurants. Um, I built some trust with Sweet Cheeks. Can I do this? Can I like extend it down the street and say, okay, like, come now that you, now that you've had this barbecue and you didn't think that there was good barbecue, like maybe we can do this. And how far can I push? How spicy and funky can it be? And um, I knew I needed a menu that would extend some olive branches to people. Like there's always party of five. There's always someone who just wants a burger, right? So it's not a burger, but it's a metaphor. And so you need items on your, on your menu that would be the burger. Um, so I knew that we needed to open with those items. And, um, and sometimes you know what the hits will be. Like when people are like, what's, what's going to be the biscuit at Tiger? I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, you can't know. I didn't know the biscuit was going to be the biscuit. What like, is the biscuit at Tiger? Um, <laughs> Probably Singapore street noodles. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love those. Um, which were not on the original menu. 
like not at all. Um, I got a lot wrong at Tiger when we first opened it. Um, and I had to really listen to our guests and I had to work stuff out for that menu to be, to be right, honestly. And it's, and that's a really hard thing when you first open up a restaurant. Cause it's like, I always equate it to having a child. Not that I have a child. I don't, um, I have 212 of them. Um, <laughs> I, uh, like you, you have all these things you want for it. You know, you want the world for it. And you want it to, eventually it's going to show you what it needs to be. And if you don't listen to that, you are, you're sorely, you're going to be lost. And, and there's things you just have to do right. Um, and ha- you have to dig your heels in and say, no, 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 this dish has to be fire, like really spicy. Cause that's what it is. And that's how it balances the rest of, you know, the components in the dish, whatever. Um, so it's hard to sort of know where to be malleable and listen to your guests and listen to people saying, Hey, this isn't, this thing isn't totally right yet and, and where to go. Yeah. Like, no, this thing is right. Maybe this other thing is right, but I'm going to dig my heels in and make sure that I'm standing firm on, on some things. And it's just, it's really hard to navigate like what those things are. And um, so I had a hard time doing it at Tiger in the beginning and it took me probably a year and a half. And the second year of Tiger was like one of the hardest years of my life. So Tiffany, after surviving that really challenging period and getting through that difficult time, how did you then turn that around and what lessons did you take on opening Orfano? It's so interesting. They're all going to bring you to your knees and you just don't know how. I wanted this restaurant to be, to kind of go back to where I learned to cook, right? Like being in kind of like the Todd English sphere, which was Italian and Mediterranean. And, um, but I wanted something really specific out of it, right? Without it being like overly conceptual. I went to dinner at, um, I didn't used to say the name of the restaurant. Now I don't give a shit. Um, at Babo in New York. Um, and it had been many years after, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a classic restaurant. It's been open for 20 something years and, um, sat there. It was with my wife. It was our anniversary. We said it was our anniversary. Um, and we were just ignored. Like there were suits all around us. There were like all these business dinners all around us and we were just completely ignored. And I just thought, this is some bullshit. Like, this is crazy. And I, we're ignored because we're women and we're ignored because we're lesbians. The, the assumption is we're not going to spend a ton of money. And um, and it do- shouldn't even matter. I shouldn't have to, like, roll out the, like, you know, platinum Amex to, like, be treated well in a restaurant. So I just left and it made such an indelible impression on me in such a negative way. Um, now, you know, knowing what we know now, fish rots from the head down. No one's really surprised. But, um I I just thought there's a better way to do this. And I knew what the food should be. I wanted it to be like Italian-American classics, but take them all apart and let's put, put them back together. Like why is, why do we love calamari? Like what is it that we love about it? Is it just the squid? What else do we do with it? What are other components of things that I've learned along the way from other cultures without it being like gross fusion? I mean, everything's fusion. We just don't like saying that word. Um, so... Yeah, I just I, w- I wanted all these things for it. I wanted it to be really beautiful and sexy and fun and irreverent and very feminine without being off-putting um, or specifically feminine. Does that make sense? Without being singularly feminine. Um, and I wanted a room where, you know, women, people of color, queer people that have kind of historically not always felt great in restaurants felt like there was a thousand things in that room telling you that you, you belong here. Um and that everyone that like, you know, also suits could walk in and just be like, yo, this room is dope. You know, like it's great. The food's really great. Like if you're paying attention, we have a pretty tremendous sense of humor in our restaurants and there's a reason behind everything. And if you're not, that's fine. Like we you just come in and have a good time and enjoy yourself and come back. Like it doesn't have to be like this. I don't have to preach my, you know, postmodern feminist theory to you. 
that gets on the walls. I'm curious how much of feeling like you could open that restaurant now is you and your career and what you've accomplished and like this moment that we're living in now with Me Too and with, you know, people being a little bit louder in a great way in the restaurant space. Um, I'm curious. It's a good question. Um, I think it would have happened without Me Too. There's definitely more space for it now. There's more allowance of, of women talking about the experience of being a woman in the world in very real ways now. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I don't know that it would have taken exactly the shape that it did. It would have come. Um, I don't know that I would have been able to, yeah, be quite as ballsy as I was with it. Have you been in yet, Catherine? I have not. <gasps> I'm coming we in, we got to get you in. I've been in twice in the last date. few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I doubled down. <laughs> it's awesome. It's just like you're saying, it's a playful take on, you know, an old school Italian steakhouse Mm-hmm. vibrate yep and there's so much detail in everything i mean from the garlic bread what is it known as garlic mm-hmm. bread coming out in like a paper bag you know to the aperol spritz is being served in like almost it's old bottled school coke bottles yeah, yeah it's bottled mm-hmm. um there's just so many thoughtful details all around i'm clearly i'm a little obsessed oh, <laughs> the pastas are amazing obviously and um yeah we'll have to get you in there yeah. and we'll have to get you a martini from the martini, martini cart, cart. Oh. <laughs> yeah, stephanie probably doesn't i had a baby a few weeks ago so on my yes. like list of places to go is this big and also my excitement over alcoholic beverages is like at an all-time high. <laughs> We have all of like, the alcohol the cocktails. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a Fenway crawl, Catherine. Yes. Crawl. I love it. <laughs> that actually brings up a good point we wanted to ask you about. Uh, so you have these three babies, and you have Fool's Errand. Yep. Um, why Fenway? Why did you decide to take over Boylston Street? Well, I didn't exactly. I mean, I just kept – we have such a great relationship with our landlord, and um, – You don't hear that every day. No. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't. Um and I also worked, I think we worked out how to be successful in this neighborhood. It has a really specific rhythm and cadence to it um, that is changing a little bit. It's morphing, but it's not. The core of it has not really changed. I mean, the, the ballpark it draws a lot. And it, um, it again, you have to listen to what it needs. You can't do, you can't just do you and be like, oh, you know, devil may care. It's like, no, that there are really specific things that you need to do to operate well next to a ballpark. Um, so there's that relationship with the landlord um and then I guess you know there was this like juxtaposition of growth between like me and the neighborhood and my landlord and what we were developing all kind of was you know we all kind of wanted the same things in our own little pods in our own way and it just worked out at the time and um they kept saying hey what about this space (laughs) (laughs) and um and making life really easy for me. And um, and so it's been a really good partnership for both of us. Um, we are actually venturing out of the Fenway this spring. I'm so nervous. <laughs> I know. Tell us everything. <laughs> we're, opening, um, we're opening three spaces in the High Street Food Hall, in the, um, in the food hall there. Um, we're doing tenderonis, which is pizza, like um, kind of late 70s, early 80s, pizzeria vibe pizza. Um, we're doing dive bar, which is raw bar, kind of southern classics, meet New England, um, and then we're doing one more space that we haven't talked about yet. So yeah, I knew about two, but the third is the the breaking news. Not gonna break, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's gonna you. be so fun. That's we will awesome. wait with bated breath. Uh, I feel like we did glaze over Fool's Errand a little yeah. bit. Your fourth baby. Can you tell us about the inspiration? The youngest children. Yeah, they always get ignored. The third, third, third baby. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, because it's so different yes. as well. I mean, all your concepts are so different from one another, but Fool's Aaron is especially different. It's standing room mm-hmm. only. I feel like there was some inspiration from from European yep. bars, right? Can you tell us a little bit about sure. that? Sure. Um, Fool's Aaron is um, like an adult snack bar, essentially. All standing, so you're there for 15 minutes or three hours. You can drink and eat everything, or you can have one quick pop and leave. And it's gorgeous inside and fun and irreverent. So we had we actually took the space because we needed more room for refrigeration and wear washing at Sweet Cheeks, like nothing that's sexy or interesting. Um, and we had 400 square feet to play with. And it didn't need to be like the world's most successful thing. It just didn't need to like suck, right? Like it, I needed to do well, like okay financially. So I had this opportunity to like really have a project that was like a pet project. And the initial idea for Fool's Aaron was it the precursor to Orfano. Um, I sent this like pitch to my landlord because they have to kind of approve conceptually what we're doing. And they've never said no to us for anything except this. Um, I sent this pitch to the landlord about a 10-seat, like super gangster, smallest Italian restaurant in the world. And he, my phone rang like 15 minutes later and he was like, absolutely not. <laughs> He's like, we need an Italian restaurant in this neighborhood. You want to do it? Let's do it. But no, not this. And I was like, okay, scratch that. Um, so we, I just started talking and thinking about like what – what would work in a tiny, tiny space? And I thought about like a tiny sushi restaurant, thought about a ticketed only like super high end thing. And ultimately like that's not my food. Maybe it will be at some point in my career, but it's not. Um, so I kept thinking about this place in Paris that I love. Um, it's called Levant Comptoir. There's two, there's one De La Mer and then there's one that's like most like more meat focused. And there's just this like beautiful raucous wine bars. Um, and I thought of places in Barcelona that have been, and just thinking like, could we do this? And this is the biggest question mark of all the restaurants, right? Like, will Bostonians just stand? Mm-hmm. Will you just stand? <laughs> lazy, lazy people. Yeah. It's not that. It's just yeah. like, and it's it's funny. Like, I was talking to Cheryl Julian, and she was like, but Bostonians, Bostonians go, they go to Europe all the time. I was like, I know. And they love European things in Europe. And then they come <laughs> here, and they're like, where are the chairs? <laughs> yeah. So, um. I can picture Cheryl asking you that, yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> Yes, yeah, sitting next to Cheryl Julian's fun. You're just like, wow, I'm like a dirtbag. I don't she's know so if you've like ever met her. I haven't met her. She's like my mentor, and I would have no career without her, and she's I love her amazing. more than anything. She's amazing. She'll and scare she's... the crap out of you. I can't wait to introduce you. <laughs> like, just presence. You're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. You're in the presence of greatness, and you know it. Um, yeah, so it's going really well. It is candidly telling us that it needs to be something else right now, so we're making a couple of changes to it. Nothing like earth shattering just it's it's a kid that's grown up that's telling us what what it needs and we're listening Catherine, you know i love my wine so i want to talk about wine stir for a minute a what a stir did you say wine because you know i am so excited to be drinking wine again now that this baby is born well wine stir curates great wines from small producers in the u.s you browse their collection of unique hard to find wines and then they ship it straight to your door with fast cheap delivery Is this a wine club, like those pricey fruit basket and Chardonnay things my parents used to pick out from catalogs like back in the 90s? Definitely not. Winester does have a club program with special member pricing for some of the best bottles, but there's no commitment and it starts at just $79 per shipment. Plus, unlike a lot of other clubs, the selections are from small production wineries. You have the option to repurchase your favorite bottles and you get 24-7 access to an expert wine advisor. Oh, and you get free shipping on wine gifts that you want to send to friends or family or... Co-hosts? Yes, co-hosts like you. So you're telling me I don't need to pack up my baby or put on pants to get great wine? 
And when I finally do leave the house, I can show up to book club with something so much better than the usual grocery store swill. Exactly. So anyone and everyone who loves wine should head to www.winester.com for more information. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R.com. I feel like you are so sage and just the way that you said that, like that seems like that could be such a panic moment at in a different point of your career or maybe a different person, but to be like, oh no, we just need to like, you know, adjust this a little bit. And yeah. I don't know. I feel like I want to suck some more like badass businesswoman acumen out of you <laughs> while we have you across the table. I mean, the truth is if you don't take some shit in stride, you're just going to have a heart attack and I don't want to die. So, <laughs> um, not, not yet. Um, got shit to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, not everyone in the company is like taking it in stride and I don't take it. It's like, it keeps me up at night. Like I'll not every night, but there are nights I wake up at three 30 in the morning. I'm like, motherfucker, the fool's Aaron really needs, <laughs> needs my attention. Um, and I couldn't see it for a long time. I couldn't see what it needed. And one of the things that's been really challenging at fool's Aaron, which is so interesting. And I don't want to seem cavalier around this. Like, it's not like, like I want it to perform well financially and to do really well and it's doing okay. Um, it fools has been such a um, black hole for cooks in terms of mental health. You're standing there and you're alone. And the bartenders are there, but that interaction, that's really the bartenders interacting with the guests. Um, and I've gone, we have like four or five chefs now that have gone through fools and no one has survived it well. So I'm in a place where I have a responsibility to not put a human in that situation and to be able to understand how to move something conceptually where it's not going to hurt someone yeah and it has been i know things you don't think about yeah no that's really that's really thoughtful and interesting too yeah it's hard it's hard i feel like you've built an obviously an incredible team to help you run all of these restaurants yes big heart hospitality right i always see the hashtag used across across the channels yeah how have you managed to find these people hold on to them and create such a great team atmosphere for everyone eight years eight years right so um it takes time um because really talented people don't always want to be on the ground floor of a barbecue restaurant as it turns out <laughs> um uh dan's been with, with me for 10 years we were at roca together he's now the culinary ops director we have such a great team megan mckinnon just joined our team as the director of operations and i don't know if you guys know her but she has been Benedetto and Radius and Straight Wharf and Ventura, like the crew, like there's nowhere. She's like such an incredible veteran. Um, Charlie Gata has come on our team as our wine director, who is just next level and one of the most genuine, kind people I've ever met. Brian Callahan, we call him the silent killer. He is um, our beverage director, not wine stuff. And he's like not even low key, like high key, one of the most talented beverage directors I have ever met with zero ego. Wow. That's rare. Those two sentences are yeah. never said together, <laughs> just so you know. Um, and then Michelle Carter is our um, culinary creative director. Um, she's incredible. Kelly Walsh runs it with me. She's my wife and my partner. Um, it took time. It just took time. And it wasn't always like this. Like, I hired assholes at one point, and I got stuck with them. And you just, like, like the extraction of that is so painful and so hard. Um, and I've been caught with, like, myself standing in a kitchen with not a lot of people around me and thinking, how am I going to pull this off? Um, so it's a lot about being intentional as a company. Like we are, we are, we have a no assholes policy and, and I'm in a place now where I can say, okay, if you're going to be a jerk, there you go. You can leave. Um, and there are times when you feel hamstrung, like you can't do that. Like you're a little held hostage. Um, however hostage you think you're held, you're not, they're going to leave anyway. 
And there's nothing worse than like some jerk that you've hired that's like a cancer in your organization that doesn't is not a part of like what you're trying to do in the world. And all you want to do is fire them and then they leave first. Like there's nothing that feels worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, wait, I was going to fire you. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of time and being intentional and really having um, conversation and trust and letting people do what they do and do it well and understand what the boundaries are and understand what the mission is. Not just what we're doing in terms of food and drink and service, but like, why are we doing this? Like, what is what is the greater the greater why? In in that vein of thinking about your team and, you know, balancing everything, uh, for better or worse, like the media circus is just part of being a chef these days. And obviously you had early exposure with um, mm-hmm. Top Chef. But do you have any advice for other chefs um, or people who are, who are figuring out how do you balance that? It seems like it takes up a fair amount of time for a lot of people. It does. Um, as a young chef, just don't. Like, work on your craft. Like, there's nothing ultimately, like, the media is there for you, but if if you don't have something to contribute, if you don't know what you're talking about, or you don't have, if you don't have something to give, like that's that's gonna fall flat really quickly. So just work on your craft. If it comes, it comes. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Like I mean, people have literally said, like I, they don't want to be a chef. They just want to be on Top Chef. Ugh. Why? <laughs> like it's I just don't I don't understand. Get your priorities straight. I would think like first and foremost, if you want to be in media, go be in media. If you want to cook, cook. If they both come together at some point, great. And then there's times where it's too much media and it's not enough cooking and it's not enough. Like I've gotten to a point where I really have to make sure that I schedule cooking. <laughs> Head explodes. Like yeah. when did I think that would happen, right? So, But there are also elements of it. Like it's interesting because chefs, I think, were seen as like this one thing, this one job. Um, and any other job in the world, it really does continue to grow and morph and um, you know, you become a surgeon and then you're a really good surgeon. Then you're the chief of surgery and you have to make sure you still perform surgeries. You know what I mean? So it's very much the same as that. And, but it's become, my job is so dynamic. Um, like I get to work on marketing and PR and I get to work on HR stuff and I get to work on design and builds and, um, yeah. So I, like, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but there are times when it does get out of balance and it's like, I just need to go to ground. I just need to go into the kitchen and stand there and cook. I'm curious to hear, you know, looking back at opening all of these concepts and establishing this team and wearing all these hats, do you have a favorite moment or memory that stands out through the, the blur of opening wow. <laughs> for restaurants? Wow, what a question. Um, it's so interesting. I think the moments always come down to people, right? Like watching someone round a corner or someone do something that they didn't think that they could do or... I mean, I'm having a moment now and just like the team that we have and I feel so blessed and so grateful to have them here and present and getting it and psyched and you know like we have this stupid hashtag that's like hospitality never stops I don't know if you like have I've been seeing Instagram it. yeah and it's like what we can do for our guests and what we can do for each other and we're always like I mean that's one of the greatest things about being on the same block is we're always running around like giving each other little treats and hiding things and doing like it's just it's so I've never had more fun at work I've never had more fun at work also this double down commitment to each other right like to in the eye of all the storm like our job is to be hospitable and to be great to our guests but also each other and I think a lot of restaurants miss that like if we're not going to be good to each other who the hell are we going to be good to so family first take note people yeah (laughs) yeah it's all about the team right yeah oh you guys (laughs) 
Um, otherwise, we asked our Instagram followers if they had any questions for you. Mm. We actually had a lot of people chime in today. Oh, really? Yeah, which was exciting. Um, but I found Emily's question interesting, and she wants to know, what is the most challenging part of navigating success in the Boston food scene specifically? Ooh. Um, this is not an interesting answer, but just uh, the constant opening of restaurants. And I'm part of the problem. I get that. I get it. <laughs> but um, I find it what I find most frustrating is like chains or restaurants that are just like a knockoff of something else or it's clearly someone's just it's a money grab. It's not like like I was talking to someone else. They'll go a name that um, that said, yeah, we just like needed to open this other restaurant, but we didn't know what we wanted to do. I just thought stop there like why <laughs> why why did you need to open another restaurant yeah. right like if you do like the, your business structure is not working like it shouldn't be a p- pyramid scheme right one should not have to keep the other one open like they should all be independently successful and be able to sustain themselves yeah and so I, I get less irritated now than I used to but because it just feels like it sucks the resources from the city and there are people that are talented that I don't know should just get a shot at something and their hearts in the game and you know I just see like shitty concepts or stuff that like does doesn't have any soul to it then I'm just like stop taking the oxygen out of the room all right and then I do want to ask one more question from one of our Instagram okay. followers because I selfishly also want to know the answer uh do you have a favorite dish from all of your restaurants Ooh, I know it's like picking a favorite child but <laughs> it is in some ways um there it's so interesting it's so telling because I think um you get sick of things um like I t- you know I'm constantly tasting and um and the things that I don't get sick of are the, the those are the things that tend to surprise me. Um, I can go restaurant by restaurant, but I don't think there's one overall. Um, obviously, the biscuit at Sweet Cheeks never gets old. Um, the collard greens at Sweet Cheeks never get old for me. Um, and broccoli cheese casserole because it's my mom's. Um, the Pagro Pow at Tiger Mama. I feel like I opened that restaurant so I could have Pagro Pow whenever I wanted. I love that dish. Yeah. Um, fried okra at Sweet Cheeks. Um, and Orfano. Dan's meatballs are so good. They're not mine. They're Dan Reyes. They're his family's recipe from Sicily, minus the pine nuts because we didn't want to kill anyone. Um, they're just so good and so craveable and so delicious. The We have this um, – it's coming off soon, so I probably shouldn't plug it, but we do a gnocchi dish with, like, um, a broccoli puree and, like, roasted, like, uh, really hard-roasted broccoli. We call it confetti. And then raw broccoli, confetti on top. And I, it's just – it's so simple and it's bonkers. It's really good. Yum. I didn't have a gnocchi yet. And our ribeye is dope. We had the ribeye. Yeah, we had the special person. one. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I love a good steak. I do too. And not at like a gross Cheney steakhouse yeah. in Boston. I never go to those. Right. But hey, now I have Orfano. Now you have Orfano. <laughs> um, the meats get glazed over at Orfano, and they are they are so good. Like we have worked really hard hard at sourcing these incredible chops and steaks. They're so good. Yeah, I totally agree. I actually had an incredible veal chop at the bar the other night. That was heavenly. We always like to ask everyone on the show the same round of rapid fire questions. Okay. So if you could name your favorite Boston dumpling. The um, shrimp and chive dumpling at um, Hey La Moon. It's fried and it's always cold, but it's still good. Dive. Bar. Um, the Galway House in JP. Dessert. Um, like my pastry chef kills the game. Her chocolate cake is so good. I shouldn't plug myself, but it's so good. I would eat 10 of them and pass out. And date spot. Zuma, yeah, and I like to go high, like <laughs> I like to get really high. Before we go. <laughs> That's amazing. You didn't tell me that from seriously tweets. It's gonna be way better. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, now I need to go to Zuma soon. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. 
Catherine, have you signed up for our monthly newsletter? Molly, I'm embarrassed to say that until recently I actually hadn't. I thought I was on top of all things TFL, but it turns out I was missing out, especially on the cocktail recipes. Well, I'm a little offended it took you this long. But every month we highlight new content, ranging from drool-worthy can't-miss dishes to neighborhood guides, cocktail recipes, upcoming events, and more. And you and Sarah throw the best events. I'm waiting with bated breath to see if you do Valentine's Day again this year. I am still thinking about the charcuterie boards and the raw bar. Well, now you'll be the first to know since you actually signed up. To sign up, just go to thefoodlens.com and click on the subscribe button in the upper left-hand corner. It's the best way to avoid food FOMO in Boston. This podcast was produced by Ali Pham and Isaac Price Slade. A special thanks to the folks at the PRX Podcast Garage. If you enjoyed what you heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with friends and family. Your help means so much to us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show and check out thefoodlens.com for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston.